0: Well, good morning. Welcome to week seven of Smart Home. It's been a fun series so far. Uh, Before I jump in, I want to pray real quick. And I want to pray specifically uh, for the group of married adults who are hanging out in the multipurpose room right now with Mark and Laura Chook, our founding pastors, uh, in week one of the marriage workshop. I know some of you just got out of that and are here now for the worship service. But I want us to pray that God would do something in that time in that space right now, and then pray for the rest of our time together. So will you join me in praying for that? God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together, to be in this place together, and, but also for those that are gathered in the multi-purpose room right now, for those couples that are just looking for ways and for truth to continue to build the relationship to what you desire that it be in their marriage. So God, I pray that you would begin to work miracles in each one of those couples I pray that you would do miracles in their homes that what they're experiencing what they're talking through what they're um, just processing right now use that to do your work not just today but in the days weeks and months ahead Uh, we trust you for that and we pray for even our time together now as we open up the Bible and just begin to understand some truth for us and what it means for us in our homes. so would you uh, allow us to hear clearly from you would you allow me to speak clearly so that you can be heard Uh, we don't need to hear from Wes today but we want to hear from you and so use the words that come out of my mouth to just uh, communicate whatever it is you want to communicate. We trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've shared this story before. Uh, it's been several years ago, but five, six years ago maybe, I don't remember exactly what year it was, my wife and I and our two little boys, we were Uh, with some friends we were going to eat dinner at gringo's right down 290 and we were waiting for our table in the waiting area i think that's just a requirement when you go eat at gringo's you've got to wait in the waiting area it seems like and we're sitting there all of a sudden at the same time brandy's phone and my phone started going off we were getting text messages after text message after text message things like oh my gosh are you serious and like 16 exclamation marks and please tell me it's true exclamation mark. Are you kidding me? Is this really happening? I can't believe it. We're so happy for you. I mean, all of these texts, and I am super confused. Finally, one of my friends texts me, and so I just called him. I was like, hey man, I'm real confused. What is going on? He goes, please tell me it's true. Like, we're gonna go buy that ranch now, right? And I said, what are you talking about? He said, it's on the news, man. Brandy won the lottery. And I said, I looked at Brandy, and I kind of was confused for a minute. I was like, are you doing something? I'm not aware of? Like, did you, are you, you have a secret stash? And um, I said, hey, did you, are you playing the lottery? Did you win the lottery? She's like, no. And then she's like, oh, that's why I'm getting all these text messages. And so quickly it went from this like, oh my gosh, we won the lottery. This is going to be amazing too. Nope, it wasn't us. But there was another Brandy Jackson that had bought the winning lottery ticket in Fairfield, which is where we live. And so everybody just assumed that it was my family that experienced this incredible day. And I remember thinking, man, that sure would be pretty cool, though. And you're like, Wes, money doesn't buy happiness, and I know that it doesn't, but man, it sure would be nice to find out for myself. <laughs> and I would, do, I would do several things with that kind of money. I mean, this was several millions of dollars, and as, you know, just like you, I mean, even right now, you're probably thinking, man, what would I do with millions and millions of dollars that just all of a sudden surprisingly fell in my lap? I mean, I would tithe to the church. I would double my tithe, okay? I'm just going to be extra generous. Double tithe on that, bring that, give that to the church. I'm going to go buy, I don't even care if it's a shack on the coast, so then when I go fishing, I have a shelter that I can sleep in in between my fishing trips because I love to fish on the coast. So I'd definitely buy some sort of land property shack on the coast. Um, I, would, I would pay for a driveway that left the COF parking lot. It would be the West Jackson Parkway going from our parking lot to 290 so that everybody could leave the campus with ease, going in both directions. Um, And then I would do this. I thought a lot about this. I would purchase every single home football game ticket at the University of Texas for the season in 2025. And here's why. In 2025, the Texas Longhorns are joining the Southeastern Conference. And I just think it would be incredible if they ran out of that tunnel every home game that year to an empty stadium. I mean, who's with me? Anybody? It's funny, after the 9.30 service, uh, a friend of mine, Troy, walks up to me, and he's wearing a burnt orange Texas shirt, burnt orange Texas hat, and he's just standing in the background going, rubbing that Texas longhorn on his shirt. He's like, and I'm like, yeah, I know, it's, it's, those are horns, and the devil has horns. and So... <laughs> But have you ever done that? You thought, man, it would be so nice to win the lottery, to have that kind of money. It would change my life. But did you know that statistics actually show that the opposite is true in most cases? In many instances, and you can go spend some time later Googling uh, people who have won millions and millions of dollars in the lottery and actually have found themselves in worse scenarios than prior to winning the lottery. You know, you look at Professional athletes who make millions and millions of dollars. You know, in the NFL, two years after retiring, 78% of former players find themselves bankrupt or in some sort of financial distress due to joblessness and divorce. After five years, for an NBA player who retires, they find themselves completely broke. Millions of dollars. So what it tells us is it's not about the, the amount of money that you have. I was reading some this week thinking about, as we think about this in our homes, that one of the biggest sources of conflict for married couples is financial conflict. How to handle money, how to process financial decisions. I found a Gallup poll this week and it said this, that 67% of couples worry regularly about finances. Honestly, I was surprised that the number was 67 and not higher. I also read that 80%, of couples who have officially walked through the divorce process, 80% cite financial stress as the leading cause for their divorce. What I see and what even some of what I've experienced in my own life is that money can be an incredible tool, but it can also create some really bizarre, difficult circumstances in our homes, in our lives. And as you look around, you begin to think, I don't want this for my home. I want something different. So what I wanna to do today is I wanna talk about some smart changes for your home when it comes to this area of money. What would it look like to have some smart changes? Because here's, what's, here's what I think is true. As you begin to look around and you see, man, it's broken. It's creating chaos and struggle in all of these homes. And I don't want that. And so I want you to process this statement as you think about that, that if you want the home no one has, then do what no one does, specifically in the area of finance. Did you know that the Bible has over 2,000 verses that speak specifically about money? Jesus, in his parables in the New Testament, spent 40% of his time communicating about money, about finances, about the resources that we accumulate, So I want to share six smart changes, six specific steps that you can take when you consider money and the impact it has in your home, in the relationships that are closest to you. You're like, Wes, hang on a second. Most weeks you talk about three things, and today you're doubling down. That's right. I'm doubling down, we're going to try to still get out of here in the same amount of time. All right, so here we go. We're going to jump in and talk about smart change in a smart home, specifically in the area of money, And listen, I'm not doing this because I want to talk about it. I am doing this because I think it's something you and I need to hear. And I know you don't want me to talk about this because I can see it on some of your faces. You're like, man, Wes, really? we got to talk about this? So what I'm going to do, I'm going to jump into 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And we're going to read a passage that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. And the context that Paul is writing into is he's writing to Jesus' followers in Corinth who are just beginning to understand what a relationship with Jesus looks like. They didn't grow up with the Jewish religious background or tradition, and so they're still learning a lot about their Heavenly Father, they're learning a lot about what it looks like to trust Jesus with everything, and Paul writes this letter to them, and he's writing this letter to specifically tell them that, hey, I'm going to join you soon, and when I get there, I'm going to raise some funds to send back to Jerusalem to help support our Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ, which is interesting because there was some conflict going on in Jerusalem. There was some religious division. The Sadducees who ran the temple were um, making sure that anyone that believed in Jesus and the resurrection of of Jesus could not be employed by the temple. And so there were people, Jesus followers, that were struggling to find jobs because there was so much tied to the temple work and the temple practices and tradition. And so they were jobless and there was a severe famine in the land. And here Paul is writing to Gentile believers, those that were non-Jewish believers in Jesus, saying, hey, I'm gonna show up and we're gonna collect some money to continue to support some of our friends back in Jerusalem. So that's the context of the passage that we're gonna read, that we're gonna gain some insight for even our homes. And so let's start in verse eight. It says this, and God is able to make all grace overflow. Notice the superlatives that Paul is using in in this passage. He says, make all grace overflow to you, So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Paul is immediately trying to help wrap our mind and wrap the reader's mind around this idea that God is the source of everything. He wants the church in Corinth, he wants them to understand the magnanimity of God's generosity. He wants them to see that God is perfect able and capable of providing everything and then he continues on in verse 10 if you skip verse 9 go to verse 10 it says now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness again he's beginning to expound on this idea that God is the source of every resource Everything that we had, he have, he is capable of providing. And he's using the illustration of a farmer. And he's saying, you think about seed. You think about what a farmer does throughout the year. He's saying, God is the source of all of that. God provides the seed to be planted. God created the soil that the seed's going to be planted in. God created the animals that are gonna be used to do the labor on the farm. God uniquely designed the human body so that it could labor and, and create and, and harvest the crops. He's saying God is the provider of everything. And he wants us to see something specific in this as well. If you go to verse 14, it says, they also by prayer on your behalf yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. What is that surpassing grace that he's talking about? He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. God is a gift giver. He gives good things to his children. And specifically where Paul lands is he's saying there's an indescribable gift, and that gift was Jesus. God wants to give to his children. And he gave the greatest gift when he sent Jesus to live the perfect life, to go to the cross, to give his life in our place so that we could have a relationship with this heavenly Father. For God so loved the world that he gave What Paul is trying to get the reader to understand, what he wants us to understand today, is that if we are to love, then we are to give. Because as we begin a relationship with our Heavenly Father, we begin to take on the traits of our Heavenly Father, and we begin to live lives that are generous. And the only way that we can find ourselves to that place is we have to consider this first smart change for our home, and it's simply this, that we would realize the source We would realize the source of everything that we have in our lives. We realize the source is God himself. Absolutely everything in this world comes from him. The TV that you watched this morning as you were getting ready to come to church comes from materials that God created. The food that you eat comes from plants and animals that God created. The materials used to build the house, the structure that you live in, was built with materials that God provided. God is the source for every resource, regardless of how much you have or how little you have, it's important that we realize where it all comes from. Because when we begin to think specifically about money, and money being a resource, we begin to look to money, and we begin to look to it as something that we think we accomplished for ourselves. And what happens is, is money begins to deceive us. It begins to distort our reality. It begins to redirect the path that we're going on in our life. And we begin to think to ourselves, as we begin to accumulate more money, we begin to think, man, look how awesome I am. Look how great I am. Look, look how well I have done for myself. I have skills. I have worked hard. I went to school. I accomplished all of these things. And look what I have done for myself. But if you go all the way back into the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, there's a verse for that. Look what it says. It says, but you are to remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth. Translation, he is the source of everything. He is the source of your strength. He is the source of your IQ. He is the source of the resources you have available to you to make a living for yourself. And so it's important for us to land on this first point and re- remember and realize that he is the source. Because when we fail to realize that God is a source, we begin to look to money for our security, our security, For our approval for our worth and for our value and those are things that we can't find from money those are things that we can only find in the relationship that we have with our heavenly father but we begin to look to money as the source for those things and money begins to deceive us we begin to look to money for the same reasons we look to god but listen money money doesn't care about you money doesn't have the capacity to care about you. Money is an incredible gift, but it is a terrible God. What Paul wants to remind these people of today is the same reminder for us, is that money is not ultimate. Money isn't everything, but we fall into that trap believing that it is, believing that we've accomplished it for ourselves. There's four kinds of people who can make a lot of money in this world. The first person is the one Who has the right idea at just the right time. I think about Zoom in 2020. It's like a mosquito that hits the artery and then all of a sudden you're just blowing up. I mean, it is just the perfect moment for you to find success. The second person that can make a lot of money is someone with an ability that everyone wants to use. You have an incredible voice and people are willing to pay to come listen to you sing or you're incredibly gifted in numbers and spreadsheets and accounting and so uh, you're you've been successful in that specific um, area in that specific trade in your life or maybe you're an athlete and people want to come spend a lot of money to watch you excel on the playing field unless you're at texas in 2025 and nobody's going to be there to watch you i'm sorry but these are ways that people can be successful in making money specifically the third person is someone who has this unique ability to invest in things at the right time. They just have an eye. They just have a wisdom about them. That when they, when they look towards something, they, they see an opportunity to begin to make money out of that opportunity. Everything they touch seems to just turn into gold. They turn money into money. And some of you are that one of those three. Three. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I don't want to make it awkward for you, but there are people in this room, like you you have found success in the area of finances because of one of those three reasons, and that's great. That's something to be celebrated. But then there's a fourth person. There's a fourth person that's able to make a lot of money, and it's someone who's been given skills and abilities, specifically from God, and they work 40 to 50 hours a week and make a decent living, but then fall into the trap of well, maybe I should work 70, 80 hours a week. Maybe I should give more time on Saturday and Sunday to the pursuit of this money. I'll get to the wife and to the kids later, but right now I need to focus on this. And if I can just keep that pace up, then maybe I'll make an extra $10,000 this year or 20000 or 30000 or maybe even $100,000 this year. And that's all great, and there's nothing wrong with making that money, but what did you sell in the process? You know, I think it's unfortunate that so many in our culture, especially in America, crush it in their profession only to get to a place where they end up spending their, splitting their wealth in half. All because they sold the wife, the kids, the home for the pursuit of money. Failing to realize that God is the source. You and I aren't the source for the money that we End up with now listen. I need you to understand. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with being wealthy. There's nothing wrong, and some some are more wealthy than others. The good news is, is that you're rich. The bad news is you're rich because it creates a struggle. Wealth is not the problem. Saving money is not the problem. Spending is not the problem. The problem is is that we have a tendency to make money ultimate in our lives, and we let money sit on the throne of our lives, and it dictates everything that we do. And it was never intended to be that. It's an incredible gift, but it's a terrible God. And Paul is wanting us to see this in this passage, begin to understand it. Paul continues on reminding us about God's goodness as we look at verse eight. Look what it says. And God is able to make all grace overflow to you. We read this, but I want, us to, I want to emphasize a couple of things. He wants grace to overflow to you. This is God's goodness that he's, he's really pressing in on so that always having all sufficiency In everything, which means he'll provide for every need that you and I have. You may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, the last part of verse 9 says this, he scattered abroad to give to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. In other words, he has enough to provide for you that he's just scattering it. And he can provide for your needs, not just today, not just next week, but forever. He has the capacity to do that. We begin to realize the source Look what it says. It skips down to verse 12. It says, "For the ministry of this service, if you've got a Bible with you and you write in your Bible like I do, or maybe you've got a Bible app and you want to put a note in here, um, it says, "For the ministry of this service," that word "service" is specifically talking about worship. It's specifically talking about liturgy, about the act of worship. It's a response. Because we realize that God is the source of everything. And when we realize he's the source of everything, then we're willing to worship him. We're willing to respond to his goodness. That's what this word means. We're worshiping him. This is an actual worship service. It's not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. The needs of what saints? The saints back in Jerusalem is who he's specifically talking about. But he's saying, you're worshiping him. God, because of his goodness towards you, and as you're worshiping God for his goodness, God is using that to supply the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. This is an interesting passage, and it leads us to this second change for your home, and it's simply this. As we begin to realize the source, then it leads us to a place where we naturally respond by restraining ourselves. What would it look like to restrain yourself in your home? As we better understand God's goodness, it leads us to this place where we can actually restrain ourselves because we have the proper perspective. In order to do, do this, we need to think about the needs that we have because I think sometimes we have a lot of the things that we think we need, but God has provided everything that you and I do need. I mean, the essentials for food, for, for shelter, for um, just being safe and taken care of. There are specific needs that we have, but for most of us in the United States— those needs have been met, and we have more on top of that. I mean, many of you arrived here today in a vehicle that cost a lot of money. It means you've, you've got some resources. God has met some of those needs. You're watching online today, and you're watching on a TV hanging on a wall, or you're watching on a laptop sitting on a table, or you're watching on your smartphone in front of you. You've got this device that's, that's worth money. We live in this place where we have, and we have plenty in many cases. Compared to the rest of the world, we're rich, We're incredibly wealthy. I mean, I I like to joke sometimes about this kind of stuff, but I think about um, first world problems. I mean, we live in America where we have a lot of things that make life easy. I don't know about you, but there's times where I get really frustrated when I order something on Amazon and it's going to take more than two days. I mean, come on, Amazon. I got a life to live. I need you to make that delivery like today. Or maybe it's not that, but you're watching Netflix on that smart device I just mentioned, and you're like into that show. I mean, you were watching it, it's like the, the peak moment of that episode, and then you get that little spider, that little circle, it says buffering, and you lose your mind. I mean, I think we forget, like, that signal that's making that high-definition video come through your phone is coming from somewhere in outer space. I mean, it's, it's, it's really pretty incredible what we have, especially when you consider that almost half the population of the world, three billion people in the world live on less than two dollars per day. I think we can all agree in this room and watching online that we are fortunate to have what we have. God's been good to us. But as my favorite theologian mentioned one day, mo problems or mo money, mo problems. <laughs> The notorious big and what does he continue to say he says the more money we come we come across the more problems we see i tried to get the band to sing that song for us today and they wouldn't they wouldn't agree to it i don't understand why but think about that is that not true it's like the more money the more problems we have the more we have access to the more problems seem to kind of come our way and we we don't really always know how to handle those problems very well let me, let me help illustrate and paint this picture accurately for us. Let's just talk about debt. Because in America, there's significant debt that the majority of Americans carry with them. And I'm not trying to pick on millennials here, but I, I read some information that's going to make sense. So if you're a millennial, just take a deep breath. I'm not picking on you. I'm actually right on the doorstep of being a millennial too. So um, if you get offended, I'm just offended with you. This is what it says, and this is important for us to understand. It says, Millennials are the generation with the fastest growing debt. Congratulations. Specifically, the average non-mortgage debt is $27,000. Much of that being school loans and credit card debt. Millennials outspend Boomers and Gen X by $2,300 per month. A lot of that's on eating out at restaurants, gasoline, Going to places, to and from different places. I read that in Y Pulse, which is a marketing research group focused specifically on millennials, they did a study to determine what were the top 10 life goals for millennials. And this is what they came up with number 10, be famous. That's the goal, be famous. Number nine, start a business. Number eight, be rich. Number seven, earn a higher degree. Number I forgot where I'm at. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, raise a family. Five, own a home. Number four, find and marry someone to love. Sounds reasonable. Until you read number three. And number three is traveling. Seems a little bit out of order. It's like, hey, hey, babe, I love you, but I gotta go on a road trip because that road trip's more important. Number two, have a meaningful career. And then number one, paying off debt. This is the number one goal in life for millennials is to pay off debt. And like I said, I'm not saying that to make you feel like less in the room if you're a millennial or you're watching online. Because here's what's going on. Here's what's happening. The trend is going up. Because millennials, you've been raised by a generation. We were raised by a generation where we fail to realize the source, and we fail to put any kind of restraints on ourselves, and so we've raised another generation to, to live the same way, and when we continue to live the same way, the, the impact just begins to multiply itself. And so you're doing just what your parents did, but you're just doing it at an accelerated rate, because the average American, millennial or not, is, carries $16,000 worth of credit card debts. The average American. What's my point? Without personal boundaries in the area of finance, you're gonna always find yourself driven by some kind of greed. And you may not realize that it's greed, but you're being driven by having more. You need more. It's it's intoxicating. The reality of that is that greed is a brick wall to your freedom. It might feel a little bit contradictory to say you need to restrain yourself in order to experience freedom. But that's how this works. And you see that all throughout scripture. So, we realize the source. We restrain ourselves. And Paul gives an additional, more background, more, more uh, information to help back this up. Look what he says in, back in verse 12 again. This says, for the ministry of this service. What kind of service? Worship service. This is a response to God's goodness. is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but it's also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Who are the saints? The people back in Jerusalem. This is who... Paul is talking about, continues on in verse 13, it says, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God. Who? Those back in Jerusalem, that's important. For your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ, they've placed their faith in Jesus, they recognize the power of the gospel for them personally, and they've begun to live their lives as a response to that, living in obedience, and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. Why does that matter? Why is that significant? I'm so thankful that you asked. Because here's what's going on in this. What Paul is saying, he's saying, we're going to raise these funds on purpose. And what's going to happen is, with this money, it's going to go back to the believers, to the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. And they're going to lift their heads. They're going to look to God and say, thank you, God, you provided for our needs. But it doesn't stop there. Because here's what God's doing. The Jewish followers of Jesus wrestled with the tension of allowing non-Jewish people into the local church. They struggled with allowing non-Jewish people to trust Jesus. They weren't sure they wanted to do that. You go to Acts chapter 11, and you can read about Peter being criticized for preaching Jesus to the Gentiles, non-Jewish citizens. And yet, do you see what's happening? The Jewish followers of Jesus are struggling and have some desperate needs, And who is God going to use to help meet those needs? The non-Jewish followers of Jesus, the ones that they felt were disqualified or pushed out. So they're going to lift their heads. They're going to see, God, thank you for meeting the needs in our lives. And then they're going to realize where it came from, and they're going to think, what in the world is going on? Because not only is this the Gentiles, but these are people from Corinth. And Corinth is like Las Vegas meets spring break on steroids. I mean, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And yet, these believers are now using their gifts, their resources, to help meet the needs of other people. This is what happens when we begin to live like this. God begins to reshape who we are. He begins to reshape how we're seen. And no longer are they known by their immorality, but they begin to be known by their generosity. It's a beautiful picture. There's an invitation for us today to be pulled into that same picture. And so this third change, I want us to say this with like the Tom Hanks voice from Toy Story, is reach for the sky. What does that mean? It means to lift our eyes and to to see something bigger than ourselves, to dream for something more than we'd be capable of doing on our own. It's an an expression of worship. It's not about us anymore. It's about the glory of God and everything that we have. Does God need our gifts? Absolutely not. Like, did God need the five loaves and the two fish to feed the thousands on the hill that day? No. Did he need the copper mite that the widow brought for the offering that day? No, he didn't need it. He could have done everything he needed to do without it. Did God need the borrowed tomb that Joseph of Arimathea let them use for Jesus' body when it was taken down from the cross? No, he didn't need it. He could have accomplished everything he wanted to accomplish without it. But why did he use what the people were willing to give? because he wanted them to be a part of the story. And the same is true for you and for me. He's not demanding for you to do something. He's inviting you into writing the story that he is writing in history of his goodness, of his mercy, of his grace. And as that happens, people begin to look and they begin to say, wow, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe God did this. I can't believe God is using this place to do this. As I was thinking about this and I was processing what this looks like, I remembered the story of Erebuca. Erebuca. Some of you have heard this story, but uh, when I came on staff here in 2013, right before we came on staff, we were talking to Mark and Laura at the time about what it would look like to to join the team here at Community Faith as a student pastor. And um, Laura gave us this book, Brandy and I, and I went back and read it a few weeks ago. And my mind went back there as I was studying for this message because I think this is a picture of what I just explained. The glory of God is being displayed through the generosity of his church. Mark and Laura and the team put together this book, and I just want to read a little outtake from the very beginning of the story of the Batwa people, specifically at Matara. Laura wrote this. It says, We gather in the center of the village to talk with the village elders. Our guide, translator, and soon-to-be good friend, Claude, asks the chief his name. Listen to this. He says, Me? I'm Tazini, which means no name, he replies. My parents said, you are a toi, there's no future for you. We are the forgotten people, everyone has forgotten us, forgotten by the world, even forgotten by God. And he goes on to say, I see tears streaming down Claude's face. I feel tears in my own eye, and I tell Tazina, God has not forgotten you. The Bible tells us he has engraved you on the palm of his hands, which is said in Isaiah chapter 49. She goes on to say, and there's a church in a little town outside Houston, Texas that won't forget you either. The words flow and I know God is speaking through me of his love for these forgotten ones. And then they go back a few years later after their first encounter and they had established this place, Matara, for the Batwa people and they arrive back there and it says, while in Matara, we were introduced to the first baby who had been born there. She was a beautiful, bright-eyed little toddler Shyly peeking out from behind her mother's skirt, her name is Iribuka. We were told in Burundi, names are significant. They are chosen carefully to represent the character of the child and the dreams and hopes for that child's future. When this first child of Matara was born, her parents chose to name her Iribuka, which means God remembers. Our hearts overflowed with joy, recognizing that God has worked a true miracle in the lives of the Batwa. They have moved from a no-name people to a people who know and believe that God remembers. They have personally experienced God's goodness and profound transformation of their life and their future. That's an incredible story, but do you see what's happening in this story? What's going on is people are beginning to experience God. It's important to to realize. Notice they didn't say COF remembers. They said God remembers because we don't do anything so that COF gets the recognition. We do what we do because we want God to receive the glory, God to receive the praise. We want people to respond to him, not to us. And so he uses us. As we restrain ourselves and we begin to reach for the sky, reach for something bigger, we begin to become a part of this type of impact, which is why I talk about debt, because it's impossible to reach for the sky when we're shackled to the ground by the burden of our debts. And we hear stories like this. We say to ourselves, "Oh my gosh, I want to be a part of that. I want to participate in that. I want God to use me in that." And then we remember the mountain of debt that we've accumulated. You see, it's a scheme of the enemy. He wants to rob you of the joy of participating in God's work by saying to you, you know what, it's fine. Just use your credit card. And we just keep spending and spending and spending until we've run out of something to spend and then we continue to spend. And the enemy's sitting back thinking, perfect. I'm robbing him. I'm robbing her of the joy of participating in the call that God has on their life. So look higher. Aim higher. Fourth thing is simply this. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but it's the idea. The next smart change will be to regard your family. I think it's important that when we hear a message like this, we don't leave here and just process it and think about it in isolation. Because so many of you are in a home with a, with a spouse and maybe even some kids or maybe extended family members. But again, to, to begin to process what this might look like in your home, in your family. I read this week, Dave Ramsey, Says this, many couples make this mistake of financial unfaithfulness. They unintentionally hide purchases, they unintentionally have little side things going on, and they never have any dialogue about it. And it ultimately lands in a place where there's some dysfunction in the financial sense in the homes because there's just not a lot of communication. You have such a unique, incredible opportunity to come together as a family to participate in this together. There's something really beautiful about a husband and a wife and children. And the creator of the world all aligned together, taking the resources that he's provided to us and using them for his purposes in our home and in the influence that we have around us. Verse six, if you jump back to the first part of the passage, says this, now I say this, Paul says, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And the one who sows generously will also reap generously. Paul's speaking into this imagery of farming again. He's talking about the farmer. And if you know anything about farming, which most of us don't, but it's not hard to think about and consider how farming works. Nothing in farming just happens by accident. Nothing is just spontaneous. There's a lot of planning. There's a lot of intent. There's the right season to plant, to put the seed in the ground. There's a a right soil to plant the seed in. And there's a a right time to wait and then to begin to harvest the crop that is produced by the seeds that have been planted. In order to be a good farmer, you've got to pack your patience and you've got to have a plan. I think the same is true for us when we think about our finances, is that we've got to make a plan. We've got to regulate our spending, put some boundaries up, have some expectations for ourselves, make a plan. We run so aimlessly. And the pursuit of things and the accumulation of things that we don't ever put together a solid plan. There's four things that you have to have in order to make an effective plan in your finances. They are simply this. The first thing is know what you owe. Know what you owe. The second thing is to know what you own. Third thing is know what you earn. And then the fourth thing is know where it's going. Maybe the most important step you could take after you leave here today is just to figure out those four things so that you can make an adequate plan. Because having a plan regulates your spending. It keeps you from finding a place that you never wanted to be when it comes to your finances. Let me ask you a question that might make you even a little bit more uncomfortable than anything I've said up to this point. And simply this, are you a tither? And you're like, oh man, I knew it was coming. I knew, I knew, I knew, I knew that he was gonna go there. I knew that he was going to talk about this, and absolutely we are. I want to talk about the tithe for just a second. And no, it's not because we're going to take another moment to do another offering, because maybe you blew it the first time we did it in the service today. But There's something incredibly powerful and freeing for us as we understand what the tithe is. I want us to read Malachi chapter 3 verse 10, because I think if we don't step into this, we are failing to recognize the barrier that is in our life that is preventing us from fully experiencing God's goodness in our life. Look what it says. It says, bring the whole tithe. That word tithe is specifically talking about a tenth of your income, but not just any tenth. It's talking about the first tenth of your income. You see, there's a divine order going on here. Oftentimes, we think to ourselves and our natural tendency is we think, me first, God second, and when we do that, we always find ourselves in a place where the gifts of God actually begin to create some harm in our life because we're not using them in the order they were intended to be used. And so it's not just any tent, it's the first tent. God first, me second. So he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. What is the storehouse? In the Old Testament, this would be the temple. In New Testament, this is the local church, a place like this where we gather together. It says, bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house and put me to the test now in this, says the Lord of armies. And if I do not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Do you see what he says? He says, bring the tithe to the storehouse and test me in this. Some of you today need to test him And this, and I I want you just to try to take any other opinions or thoughts, maybe just try to consider this as if you've never heard this before. What would it look like to test him in this, to begin to practice this divine order? where we begin to live, not me first, but God first? Because see, here's what happens. When we give him that first 10%, what it does is it's actually giving God ownership of the other 90%. And notice it says bring, not give. Why? Why is that? Because as we've recognized him as the source, and we're continuing to see him as the source, then we're not looking at this as owners, we're looking at it as stewards. And we've given him ownership of all that we have. And when we do that, it changes our mind. We think differently with what we have. We use it differently. You know, it's interesting, my boys, we, every year at Christmas, we take our boys to a store and we say, okay, we're gonna split up, and y'all go find a gift for each other. Mom and Dad will pay for it, but you guys go find the gift. It never fails. One of them comes back, and they want to spend like three hundred dollars on the other one. I'm like, what? You, have you lost your mind? Like, how much money did you spend on me for Christmas? Isn't it funny how easy it is to be generous with somebody else's money? That's the point. Because what we're doing is we're saying, hey, God, you have the first tenth percent. We're giving them ownership of everything. And the only natural response to that, as we are giving him ownership of it, is it leads us to a place of generosity, because it's not ours anymore. And we're not viewing it as ours. We're viewing it as his, and we want to live under his provision in everything that we do. And maybe you're here today, and you're skeptical. You're like, okay, Wes, you're talking about tithing. I knew this was probably coming. And you're like, I just, I just, I just don't know that I can get on board. Can I, just, can I just mention something that I think could be incredibly beneficial for you? At Community of Faith, we, we do this regularly. It's called the 90-day tithe challenge. And this is exactly for someone who maybe you're sitting there like, man, I've heard this before, but I've just, I'm not sure that I've ever really stepped into it. I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm, I'm just struggling with it. Maybe maybe this is the step for you to take, to kind of take down that barrier of, of experiencing all that God wants to, you to experience and to experience all that God wants to do through you in this life by taking this step of beginning to tithe, not, not giving 2% or 3%, but giving 10% of your income for 90 days. And you're, 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 you're struggling to kind of do this with your own faith, so what's, what's happening is, is because we believe this, because I believe this, because Mark believes this, Laura believes this, what we're doing is we're saying, hey, we're, we're, we're putting our faith on the line for you. And say, hey, we're trusting God for his goodness, for his blessings to be poured out in your life. Doesn't mean you're going to get this lump sum of money in the 90 days, but I promise you, you're going to be in an experience, a work of God in your life maybe you've never experienced before. And it might be the step that God has been calling you to take in order for you to experience the breakthrough in your home that you've never experienced but you've been desperate for for years. So what, it would look, what would it look like to be to give God the first tenth percent for 90 days? And if you get to the end of the 90 days, and you just say, man, I, I haven't experienced God's blessings being poured out in my life. Listen, we'll, we'll give every penny back. And it's not a money grab, it's because we want you and your home to experience the financial freedom that maybe you've never experienced before it seems foreign because maybe you've heard other people talk about it but you've never experienced it what would that look like you can you can jump into that challenge right now you can text cof 90 day to ninety seven thousand. our team will follow up with you and make sure that you understand everything and help make sure there's, there's all questions are answered but this might be the step that god is calling you to take to experience something that you're desperate to experience, which leads me to the last change. In verse 7, it says this. Each one must do this just as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly. So listen, don't do this with reluctance or feel like, man, Wes is trying to put pressure on me. He's trying to hold his thumb down on, on me. I'm not, that's, not my, that's not my intent. That's not my goal. And, and Scripture says to not respond to that anyways. But then it goes on and says, for God loves a cheerful giver. Did you know this word cheerful comes from the word in Greek, that we get the word hilarious from. So what it's saying, is saying don't do this because you just feel pressured or obligated. Do this because you trust your heavenly father and that God loves a hilarious giver. Do you know anybody like that? I mean, they're just hilarious. It's, it's almost ridiculous at how generous they are with the things that God has given them, how generous they are with their time, their talent, their resources, They're cheerful givers. It's hilarious. It's ridiculous. But God receives glory in it. Listen, this is more than philanthropy. This is ministry. This is what it looks like to live, to give. It's deeper than just a transaction. It's life-changing. And God is inviting every single one of us into this as homes, as couples, as individuals, as singles. He wants this to be the reason that we begin to live and do all that we do. I'll close with this story. When I was right out of high school, I went to college for about a year and a half, and then I decided to go get a job at Sam's Club because I like large boxes of cereal and Cheez-Its and vanilla wafers and all that kind of stuff. I started working at Sam's Club, and as I started working there, it was the most money that I'd ever made, and I thought I had made the big time. I mean, I was rolling in in $18,000 a year. I mean, I had hit the jackpot. And as I started working there, I was kind of not just loving everything that I did in school, and I wasn't, I wasn't failing or anything. I just just kind of felt a little bit aimless, and so I started working at Sam's. I started seeing opportunities, and I started seeing the paychecks get bigger, and I started seeing um, opportunities to advance myself and to, to get promotions and become a supervisor and become a manager, and I started running after that. I was like, man, this is great. I'm getting all this money, and I don't even know what to do with all of it. It was, it was awesome, and even in all that, I continued to tithe because I had been raised to do that. My, my parents had modeled that for me. And I got to this place where I just kind of felt unsettled. I felt unsatisfied. I, I struggled to, to go to bed at night excited about waking up the next morning and going to work. And I would get home from work, and I'd be like, man, that, today was kind of a drag. Like, I just, I just didn't enjoy it. And I began to process through some things. My parents went through a divorce, and in the several months after my parents divorced, I started just trying to really process everything that God was calling me to do in my life. And I remember that God had made it very clear to me that he wanted me to go into vocational ministry. And I loved being a part of student ministry specifically. And so I, I began to kind of process that and pray about it, talk to some of my friends about it, and I decided, man, I, I'm gonna go back to school, I'm gonna get my degree, and I'm gonna go to seminary, but I have no idea how I'm gonna pay for it. I didn't have any money, my parents weren't gonna pay for my college, it was, it was, I was on my own. And on Friday, I'd been at a camp as a leader, and it was that week that I was like, man, I, I gotta get back into this, it was so life-giving. And on Friday, I told a buddy of mine, I said, man, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back to school. I'm not doing the Sam's Club thing anymore. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go back into ministry and, and do what God has called me to do. But I didn't know how I was going to do it. And I was struggling to trust that God was going to provide. On Monday, three days after, I get a letter in the mail from a guy named Nelson pewitt Nelson pewitt owned a ranch out in far west Texas. My dad had managed that ranch for him kind of as a side hustle for several years. And he wrote a letter to my dad, and he said, Bruce, I've been overwhelmed with grief as I've thought about what your family has walked through over the last several months, and I've just been trying to figure out what could I do to help. And he said, I finally came to a place where I realized maybe I could help contribute towards your son's tuition in college. Three days later, struggling to trust that God was gonna provide, and three days later, God provides. He makes a way. He says, I got you, Wes. I've got plans for you. I've got a future for you. Just trust me. And what did he do to help restore that trust? What did he do to, to get my attention, to lift my eyes, to see him more clearly? He used another man's generosity. Mr. Pewitt passed away in 2006, but I'll never forget the contribution that he made in my life with his expression of generosity. My prayer for you, my prayer for us, my prayer for everyone at this church is that your funeral would be full and your bank account empty when you lose your life on this earth because your generosity has been that big, because you never missed an opportunity to help meet the need, to help serve in a ministry that needed more help. What would it look like for us to live in this way? Because remember, If you want the home that nobody has, then do what no one does. What would it look like to put these smart changes into practice in our homes this week? Let's pray. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for the opportunity to be in this place and just uh, open up your word. And here's some practical steps that we can take. I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to trust you with everything that we have. God, I know it's difficult and uh, it doesn't make sense but I pray that we would quickly begin to experience you as we trust you more, trusting you in ways that are unseen. Would you do what only you can do in that? God, I pray that you would give us wisdom. I pray for breakthrough when it comes to financial debts and the things that we've accumulated that feel overwhelming. Would you even provide in that, provide ways that we can't see now to begin to find some freedom from that debt as we continue to trust you. I thank you for today. I pray that what's happened here today would go and make an impact in our homes and our families and everything that we do. We trust you in Jesus' name, amen. Community of faith, thank you for being here today. If you have somebody you you would like to pray with, we'll have volunteers and staff down front. If there's something going on in your life, they would be more than happy to spend that time praying specifically for those needs. I hope you'll make plans to be here Wednesday night for the prayer night. And if you're not able to be here for that, we cannot wait to see you next weekend. We love you. Have a great week. See you soon.